the latest episode of the Claw's Corner. Today's episode is a tribute to the great Boris Karloff. He was born on this day back in 1887, which would have been his 135th birthday. His portrayal of Frankenstein's monster in the 1931 classic Frankenstein made him a horror icon, a career that spanned an extremely impressive 174 movies. They included The Mummy, The Raven, Comedy of Terrors, Black Sabbath, Criminal Code, Body Snatcher, Isle of the Dead, Bride of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, Son of Frankenstein, Targets, and many, many, many more. He is just as well known for his voiceover work, most notably as The Grinch, in the 1966 animated television special How the Grinch Stole Christmas. For his contribution to both film and television, Boris Karloff was awarded not one, but two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So how did English actor William Henry Pratt become the icon that we now know known as the great Boris Karloff? Well, here to talk about all of that and much more is the daughter that shares the same birthday as her legendary father. Please welcome Sarah Karloff to the Claws Corner. Sarah, how are you? I am just fine, but when you say the same birthday, it's not 135. Oh, that, <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase that. You shared the same <laughs> date. You are much, much younger than that. <laughs> well, some mornings I don't feel much, much younger than that. <laughs> oh, believe me, when I get up at 4.30 in the morning, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> 4.30. I didn't know they made a 4.30 in the morning. Uh, well, you're lucky. <laughs> it takes this. I have to get up this early just to look this good. <laughs> oh, oh, that's frightening. <laughs> I love it. Spre speaking of frightening, let's get to uh, your dad, who's made so many, as I mentioned in the intro, 174 movies. Wow. And I was talking to you off the air. I said it's so impressive that... 135 years later, we're still talking about him. He's still relevant. He's still just as popular. His legacy is going to live on forever and ever. And I think you have a lot to do with that. Because I've no, met the fans you. do. The fans do. It's yes. totally, totally the fans. Yes. Well, the good it really thing is. They are remarkable. They are multi generational and, and they're just wonderful. You know, I, it, it's got nothing to do with me and the and the conventions I attend and 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 the effort I make to perpetuate his legacy. It is the fans. They come up to me with these wonderful stories about the the um, the imprint my father had on their grandfather's life, their father's life, their life their children's lives. Their, I mean, it is absolutely amazing what an, what an impression my father, not only in the roles he played or his films, but the person that my father was. My, my father was a remarkably warm, um, lovely human being. And I think his portrayals of even the most yucky films that he or roles that he played his own persona came through and he always said that children got it as far as frankenstein and certainly was concerned the frankenstein was the victim and and not 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 the perpetrator he he was the my father was such a kind lovely um human being that People wanted to know him and they didn't they didn't care what role he played. And so when when his fans come up to me 
I'm nothing but a conduit. Mm -hmm. They wish they had had an opportunity to meet my father and I'm the closest thing they're going to get to it. And so they're stuck with me. And <laughs> I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky because they share these wonderful stories with me. And every time I speak to an audience, the fans know far more about my father's career than I could ever learn in 135 years. Or um, they they ask questions that I would never have thought to ask. Uh, they already know the answers. It's just, I mean, I'm so fortunate to be in the position that I am. I really am because I learn so much every time I, I, I'm um, at a convention or at a show or invited to places I'd never be invited to otherwise. And it's a learning experience every time I leave my own home. And if it weren't for the fans, I'd stay home and have to clean my own oven. Well, we don't want that to happen. I, I love seeing you. I go to the Chiller Convention. I see you there almost every April, every October. I've been to the Witch's Dungeon. I see you there. And then oh, I, I go that. online. Yeah, it's a great place. I, I live in Connecticut, so I live probably 20 minutes away from there. That's so close to me. And I try to get there at least once a year. And uh, Cortland has a great setup. Oh, with all the he old does. Yeah. I mean, that just started, uh, the Witch's Dungeon in, in Connecticut started in a tool shed in their backyard. And he and his father, Cortland, and his father just made these little niches in, in their tool shed where they displayed these wonderful, wonderfully made characters and his mother made all the costumes and yeah. it started out as this t90 thing and when he had to raise his price from 99 cents to a dollar and a half he apologized to everybody in line he showed home movies on sheets in his in his front yard and now it has a, a permanent home and in um, is it bristol where it is now still in bristol or it it's in Plainville. It's Plainville. Okay. The next town over. And it has a permanent home. It really is a museum. And the pieces and the, the each each place that, that he has cut out for a particular scene from a particular film is, is wonderful. And he has some of the actual voices of, of, of Gene Foray and Vincent Price and Oh, he's just done such a wonderful job. And I, it, Cortland is remarkable. And he had two family members in the business themselves. Yeah, one was the, was it the Werewolf, Werewolf of London? I think yeah, London the Henry movie. Hall and yep. um, an aunt, I believe, yeah. who was also in the business. Yep. But Cortland himself is so talented and has started this, I think, when he was 14 years old with his father. Yeah. And now it's in a museum. Yep. Well, I remember I used to go to his house when he had the museum there and the lines would be down the road. And as you said, I actually was one of the people that he apologized to. He's like, I'm so sorry for having to raise the price. But I went there every single year, saw the same thing. It was so great because then he has he had you there. He had Bela Jr. there, Bela Lugosi Jr. Um, so many people, other people that I got a chance to meet. There. Oh, we sat in a trailer. We sat in a trailer and we were freezing to death. Absolutely freezing to death. First, we sat outside 
at a table and our feet were freezing. We were from California, for goodness sakes. And it was so cold. And and he helped us with the, get the stamps approved by letting us yeah. bring our petitions and get everybody in line to sign our petitions for the stamps. And, oh, my goodness, we were freezing. So then he got a trailer we could sit in. The trailer was no warmer. <laughs> and finally, he finally figured out a way to get electricity to the trailer. And so we plugged in something that that um, was a sort of heat for the trailer. And then he got us hot chocolate. I mean, each year he just found a way to make us come back because we wanted to, but we yeah. didn't want to freeze our feet off or freeze our hands off. And we signed anything and everything. And I have to tell you, I've signed a lot of things. Mine's not an autograph. It's a signature. And I've signed a lot of things. But one year, this mother came up to me and she said, oh, my son, I'll be so glad you're here. He'll, he's right in line. He'll be here in a second. And and please don't leave. I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't know where the door was in the trailer. And so she came back and she brought her son around. And and, and I mean, it was freezing cold out. And he lifted up his shirt. I don't know why he didn't freeze to death and drop dead at that very second. And he lifted up his shirt. He wanted me to sign his love handle. <laughs> should not have lifted up his shirt. Should not have. But I signed his love handle. I said, you know now, you can never take another shower. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what got out. But nonetheless, I signed his love handle. And I think that's probably the strangest thing I've ever signed in my life. Pulled his shirt down, put his jacket on, and disappeared. <laughs> that is that is funny. <laughs> you know, it was funny about? at the time too, because we were all bundled up, and here he is taking his shirt off for me to sign his love handle. Well, you know what I love about you is that you take the time to talk to everybody, answer every question. You never rush anybody. You're like you said, you love talking to the fans, you learn new things about it. It's just so, they ask so many great questions you have. If you don't know the answer, you find out. It's just, I love the fact that you're so open and you're you're able to reach all the fans all around the world. And, I, and like you said, thanks to the fans, that's why your father's legacy is alive and well, but. Oh, no, no, it's, 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 it, I, I have such a good time. Yeah. And I meet so many interesting people and they share so many lovely stories with me that yeah. it's a learning experience about my own father. Mm -hmm. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to meet the, my father's fans. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, you know, it's a journey. And I've learned so much I would never have known before. Mm -hmm. And anybody, anybody in my position who doesn't look at it that way is missing so much. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege. Yep. Well, several years ago on this show, I had Victoria Price on the show. She was saying exactly the same thing you're saying. She said she loves going to the conventions, loves talking to all the people. And she said it was exactly what you said. She says, the people are so warm and friendly and nice. She goes, at first when I, somebody mentioned a horror convention, I'm like, oh my God, I'm afraid. And she goes, these are the best things I've ever been to. And uh, so she, I, I love the fact because I never had a chance to meet Boris, never had a chance to meet Vincent Price, but you know, I get to talk to the daughters, and that, I love that. Another, <laughs> another one is Ann Serling. I, I had a chance to meet her, Rod Serling's daughter. And 
is get a chance to talk to people that aren't the people that I grew up watching and loving, but you know, the next best thing. Well, what are, you, uh, are we what you expected? Yes. Really? Right. That's a good thing. Good. Very much good. expected. Do you so, know, at my end, all I can't see your face. I have a rectangular sign that says, this meeting is being recorded by the host or a participant. I can't see your face at all. Can you see mine? I can see you perfect. Is so, there something as, I can get rid of the sign? That I'm not sure about, because on my end, I can see you perfectly. I don't see anything that needs to be deleted off the screen. I'd, I'd much rather look at your face. I don't know. You have <laughs> a you... very nice face. I saw it when, before we started recording. <laughs> I, well, I told you, that's why I get up at 4.30 in the morning, so I can... Uh... <laughs> you know, I don't care about my face enough to get up at four thirty in the morning. I don't care about anything enough to get up. Not even my own dog. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I well, can't... what happens if I click this thing that says "Got it"? Can you see me? No, I haven't clicked it. Oh. Oh my. No, I don't want to leave meeting, but I think I can click that. Oh, gosh, I hope I like you a lot. I'm not trying to get rid of you. Oh, it, nothing happens. Ah, hi there. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Sir, so glad to have you on the show. Oh, I kept talking to the sign. <laughs> All right. Now we can finally start this interview. <laughs> I love it. That was so much better now. Are you sure? You're 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit older than that, but. <laughs> well, Just you're not 135. No, not 135. <laughs> Only 54. Oh, my, uh, well, that's where the conversation stops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll stop right there. I want to go back to uh, Boris Karloff, the early years, because I. I did so much. I research. wasn't around. Okay, well, I know that, but you, I'm sure you do know some facts about his childhood. And the reason I'm asking because he had a very interesting childhood, and I think that that helped him become the actor that he was. Because, um, as I mentioned in the intro, his name was William Henry Pratt. So, where did the name Karloff come from? You know, whenever he was asked that, I will give you the answer he gave. Okay. Because that's all I know. He said Karloff came from way back on his mother's side of the family, and Boris came from thin air. Ah. Now, there isn't a biographer around, and there have been five or six or seven biographies written that has found Karloff on his mother's side of the family, and who knows anything about thin air? Mm hmm Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great name, great stage name. However, it's he came up with it. a wonderful name. Yes. Now, did the name be wonderful first, or did he make the name wonderful? Hmm. Could a song and dance man make Boris Karloff a wonderful name? I don't think so. Yeah. But who knows? Yep. No. Either way, it fits him, and I just it's a great stage name. Whenever you hear Karloff, that's all you're ever going to think of. Nothing. There's nobody else that right. even comes close to that. 
So I want to talk about his childhood because he had a very interesting childhood. Um, what was that like? <laughs> you say that as if I were around. Um, he was the youngest of nine children by seven years. So it was almost like being an only child. Mm-hmm. Um, he had um, seven brothers and one sister. His parents were, his father was in the counselor service in England. Um, most of his brothers, almost all of his brothers were in the counselor service, trained for the diplomatic corps in at the UK. Um, he had one brother, John, his eldest brother, was knighted for his service in, in um, China and India, but in China mainly. Um, he always referred to him as his brother, the Sir. Um, he was close to his uh, brother, John. Um, he had one brother, George, who um, was uh, wanted to become an actor, but in the UK. And I don't uh, did not achieve the success that my father did in uh, in the United States. Um, his mother died when my father was at an early age, uh, and his father simply continued his counselor service abroad mm-hmm. in China and India. His, um, he was raised by a, an older stepsister who was very kind and good to him. Um, his brothers would, when they would have um, a leave, come back home and say, Billy's not doing very well, is he? And that would be referring to my father, William Henry Pratt. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was educated for the diplomatic service, not wanting anything to do with it. He always wanted to, be, uh, at what age, I don't know, but at an early age, he had made up his mind. He did not want to go into the British consular service but instead wanted to become an actor. He, st- he missed many classes uh, um, to instead sneak into theaters and see various plays, um, which stood him in good stead for his, his uh, career later on, but not for uh, what his family had planned for him. So he essentially became the black sheep of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, his, and I always get this backwards, um, his grandmother on his father's side and his grandmother, grandfather on his mother's side were uh, East Indian. I always say, East Indian rather than just Indian, so one will know it's like dot, dot, not feather. And um, um, and so the family had um, dark skin, as I do. And so he stood out in uh, British uh, public schools. Public schools are the same as our private schools. 
Um, so he didn't have a, a what would be called a warm and fuzzy uh, upbringing. Uh, his mother had a nervous breakdown and, um, as I say, died at an early age. Um, at an at an early age for my father, I think he was about seven, and so he was raised by um, an um, a stepsister, I believe, or an aunt, I believe, a stepsister. However, and um, so when he finished his formal education for the counselor service. Um, and finished all his formal education, he uh, knew it wasn't for him, and he flipped a coin, but <laughs> shows you what he know, knew about um, uh, th really the, the acting um, profession, flipped a coin between uh, British Columbia and New Zealand. British Columbia won or lost, as one might think. And uh, so he boarded a ship, um, known or not known to the captain, and um, I went to British Columbia where he thought he had a job with a farmer. Um, the farmer knew nothing of it, and he arrived in British Columbia arrived at the doorstep of the farmer who was not expecting him, but was kind enough to give him a job. And he slept in the barn and worked and worked and worked. And um, manual labor was not what he came to British Columbia to do. So when he first heard of an audition being held, he um, tried out for it. And when asked in an interview that I have on tape, how did he get his, his start? He said, oh, by a pack of lies, saying, telling the, um, the manager of this repertory theater group that he had seen, he had been in all the plays that he had simply seen. And um, uh, he told the story that the, his salary was um, $30 a week when the curtain went up on his first performance, and it was $15 a week when the curtain came down on his first performance because it was abundantly clear that he had never set foot on a stage before, <laughs> except in the seventh grade when he played in Cinderella as the devil. And so um, he um, stayed with the repertory theater in, after 10 years in British Columbia, He'd been in three repertory theater groups, sometimes getting paid, sometimes not, sometimes eating, sometimes not, painting sets, building sets, working for the British Railroad Company, British uh, uh, Columbian Railroad Company, electric company, um, digging ditches, doing whatever it took to sustain himself. But he was in British Columbia for just under 10 years before he made his way down to the States. And so he'd been in the business 10 years when he arrived in Hollywood. Wow. So how long did it take from that, the 10 years, <clears throat> to make his first movie? 
Um, he started in, again with repertory theater and um, and doing plays. And um, I don't. I think his first film was Her Majesty, the American. Well, I thought. What about the Deadlier Sex? I thought that was his first movie. Was there something? Was that... I think there's disagreement okay. um, as to which was his first movie, but I've seen him in interviews where he says um, Her Majesty the American. So I have no way of knowing. I've read biographies that say either one. Okay. So what, it was around the same time, 1920? Is that, is that about 1919, right? 1919, 1920, yes. Yeah. So, so back then they were silent films. He wasn't speaking. All silent films. I had the privilege uh, day before yesterday. I just got back last night from Indiana and um, I was invited there by Eric Grayson, who is a wonderful, um, uh, it's, it's like being around an encyclopedia of films. He is, he's a, a film re restorer and um, he, took the film that my father made of um, um, King of the Congo, and it's about a four-hour film, silent and speaking. Mm. It's the first of its kind that is uh, both speaking and silent. And um, he spent overall over time um, getting a grant from Library of Congress and all everything that went into it, about 10 years restoring mm -hmm. this film. And it is absolutely <laughs> magnificent and fascinating and learning everything that goes into this sort of work. And it, it's wonderful. It's going to be coming out in DVD uh, by January, one hopes. But it's everything that goes into the restoration of old silent films that have been neglected is, is it was an absolute education, this trip I just got back from. But um, my father made um, in excess of 170 films all told, but this was one of the, one of the latter of his first series of films because he was, Gave, he was given fourth billing in it, but he said that he made um, um, so many extra, so many silent films, so many serials, and he was cast as an extra fourth from the left in the third row for so long, and then he began to get some um, um, uh, slightly showier work after he did the play Criminal Code and then with Howard Hawks and then was able to um, be cast in that film uh, mm -hmm. in the same role and was a much showier role for him. Yep. But so, he, um, he was in Hollywood 10 years before he was cast as Frankenstein and that was his 81st film. Wow. And nobody saw the first 80 is what he always said. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love his tenacity. <clears throat> like he just stuck with it, never gave it up, always had oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
No, he he drove trucks. He uh, he carried cement bags, which was the initial injury to his back. He he did whatever it took. Yeah, you know, it was his passion. He was he was passionate about his profession. He loved what he did. He thought he was jolly lucky to be able to spend his life doing what he was uh, loved doing and then be jolly well paid for it eventually. Well, you know, I want to bring that up because I like that story you mentioned about how he lied that he was in all these plays. (laughs) Do you know, did you ever hear of the actor Bob Balaban? He, he's, uh, he plays in a lot of the Christopher Guest movies, but he was in a movie called Close Encounters back in the 70s. It was mm-hmm. directed by Steven Spielberg. He played the French interpreter, and I was watching the making of that film. So all he did was for his audition, he had one paragraph that he, he memorized in French from his high school French teacher. Ah. He got the part, and then Steven Spielberg said, oh, good, you're going to be the French interpreter. And he goes, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I don't know how to speak French. But then Spielberg found out, he goes, I love that because you do what you have to do to get your foot in the door. Worry about the consequences later. He goes, I'm so glad Bob Balban lied. He goes, that got him in the door. And he goes, we, we made it work afterwards. But I love the fact your father did that. It's like, oh, yeah, I've been in this and that. and this. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> a wonderful story, though. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> did he ever worry about when the silent films ended and the talkies began? No, I never heard that he did. Okay. No, I mean... Why would he? I mean, he had three things that he used in his career. His voice, which was beautiful. He could do anything with his voice. He could scare the tar out of you. I mean, just absolutely terrify you. Or he could soothe you, my dear. (laughs) Don't be so common, you know. Or he could do anything with his voice. Look, Look at Look at how the Grinch stole Christmas. And how quickly he could change from the narrator to the voice of the Grinch or his Broadway work. I mean, he could do anything with his voice. And then he had his eyes. Mm -hmm. His eyes could be so intense, so terrifying. And those eyebrows. And he he could look at you and just melt you. Look. Look how he looked on This Is Your Life when he found he was the he was the subject of the evening. He was horrified. <laughs> I wanted to bring that. Let's talk about that now, then, because I was going to talk about that. The look on his face. And was oh, that your stepmother that he gave the death look to? Was that your stepmother? Oh, that- yes, that was my stepmother. And he had elicited Ralph and Barbara and my stepmother and my father were very good friends and they attended they attended many of the shows and sat in the wings and watched them but he had elicited a promise from ralph he would never make him a subject of the show because my father was a very private man yeah and so we did they sat in the wings many times and so if you see that he waves he thinks he's being introduced just as a guest just as the an evening guest oh here's Horace Carlisle for Tenny just waves. <laughs> and then there's this pause, and it comes over him, and he knows that Evie has, he told, he said later, Evie sold him out for a washer and dryer. <laughs> but the look. Oh, my God. The look 
and it's just momentary because he realizes he's on camera. Yep. Oh, he's a professional. But, he realizes that he's, oh, he's watching. But he looked at her like, I mean, it would melt glass. Yep. Well, there's two Oh, things. my goodness. Yeah. When Jack Paris, the great makeup artist, came out, that's oh. when he really lit up. His eyes, he was oh, so happy. Oh, he so adored Jack Pierce. Yeah. And of course, Universal did dirt to Jack Pierce. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father knew that. He adored Jack Pierce. I have a wonderful photograph. It's not really a photograph at all. It's a picture that Jack Pierce had made for my father with my father's face out of makeup in the center. And then all the makeups Jack and he did together through the years. And there are 13 of them. And it's just wonderful. But the two of them spent, I mean, you couldn't count the hours they had spent together on all the makeups they had done. And they had bonded a friendship through the years. And my father truly meant every word of praise he said to Jack Pierce that night, that this man is an absolute genius. He's the best in the business and always has been and on and on. My father really, really meant that. And Jack brought him um, the electrodes, you know. Yeah. And 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 they were later stolen out of my father's flat in in London, along with my stepmother's charm bracelet. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well. What, what a shame. Yeah. Uh, but it it was just it was such a moment between the two of them, between Jack and my father. I mean, there had been so many hours, so many years, so much success that they had achieved together. And uh, so much cooperation and, and, and everything. 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, and so much devotion to the, to the profession and to, and to, to the to the work at hand, mm -hmm. and um, of course Frankenstein made it such a pivotal difference in my father's life and career, and it was due to that makeup. Oh yeah, and to the performance, of course. And, but but nobody nobody expected the creature to be the 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 star of that film. Nobody knew how that film was going to be the success that it was. And it was due to Jack Pierce's makeup, James Whale's direction, and my father's uh, portrayal. And it was this wonderful marriage of talent. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. It's a new phone and I don't know how to turn it off, but I'll turn it off now and then I'll just make it go away. Sorry, goodbye. And so it was just, it, it was just a magical combination of talents. Yeah. And Jack was equal, absolute or superior in talent. And my father knew that and appreciated it all through his career. And it showed that night. It really yeah. did. Well, you, I agree with you because Jack Pierce's makeup made the monster scary. But Boris Karloff's portrayal 
made gave him humanity, gave him uh, like oh, yeah. made you feel sympathy for him. So it was a perfect combination. James Whale did a Whale did a great job directing that. And I want to talk about that since we're talking about Frankenstein right now. What was his relationship with James Whale like? Uh, well, I mean, it was such a step up for my father to be in a film directed by James Whale at that point yeah. in his career, because James Whale was a, a, a huge director at that point and went on to direct other wonderful things. Um, I know when my father objected to the scene of tossing the little girl in the uh, Maria in the in the lake. Um, Whale wanted to make it look more violent. My father wanted to make it look more like he was the creature was trying to make it look more like float. He thought she would float. They argued over that and the to have an actor argue with a very important director annoyed Whale mm -hmm. and therefore he uh, made my father carry Colin Clyde up the back hill many times when one shot would have been enough. Mm -hmm. I think that changed the relationship. Before that, I think it had been very professional and very cordial. Um, but they went on to work together again uh, very cordially and professionally. But I think there was uh, moments of um, problems over that because yeah. my father, my father, who was not even invited to the premiere, Mm -hmm. uh, was nothing but a, um, a, a just a piece, you know, a piece of meat at that point. That's how actors were treated before SAG was invented and uh, created. And my father was a founding member of SAG. His card number was number nine, but that was all before that. And so to have an actor speak up as as strongly as I'm sure my father did in objecting to making that a violent scene rather than um, a tender scene, I'm sure annoyed Whale, and I'm sure my father stood up for his own version of what the interpretation of that scene should be. So I'm sure they, they bumped heads. Well, it sounds like he was being very vindictive by making him carry the actor over and over well, again because he knew he I'm already had back problems. That. What was that? I'm not going to say that. Okay. Well, the, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Right. Uh, they did end up working together, which is good. And that the movie they made together was really good. But I want to talk about Maria, who is played by Marilyn Harris. She uh, She's another one doing my research on your father, I didn't realize what a horrible childhood she had and how she really warmed up to your father. Your father was so good to her. And so let's talk about her, because I know that you became friends with her son. Oh, that was so out of the blue. Yeah. First of all, she took my father's hand and said, can I ride in the car with you? And she, he said, yes, of course, darling. My father loved children. It was wonderful with them. Um, <clears throat> and her 
mother was a stage mother. Times, whatever number you wish to pick. Mm -hmm. Wanted her to eat nothing but hard boiled eggs. So she would not gain any weight. Um, she was a darling child. That's really all I know. Okay. Um, I know she adored my father. Um, and he thought she was just adorable. Years pass. And I am have been invited. I mean, this is just so coincidental. It's just creepy. I'm invited to do a shoot at Lake Malibu. Um, and on the same, uh, just a few days before I'm going to do a, a show in uh, uh, Burbank, actually, uh, called Monster Palooza, I think it is. And so, um, and the shoot is going to be at Malibu Lake, sitting where, uh, in the same area, where my father and Maria, Marilyn Harris, had thrown the daisies in the lake, reenacting that with a man who is dressed up as Frankenstein. First time this has been done. And six days before this shoot is scheduled and I'm being brought in from the Palm Springs area where I live, my phone rings and it's this man whose name is Don Harris. That's Marilyn Harris's son. Never heard, didn't even know he existed. And he, out of the blue, he knows nothing about this shoot, nothing, 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 nothing about anything. He has a album, a, a photograph album he's created about his mother. And he knows that I have been helping promote my father's legacy. And he would like to begin to correspond with me if I have any ideas about how I could help him promote his mother's career. Totally coincidental, timing-wise. And I said, you bet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Where are you? What's your phone number? What's your email? What's your everything? Because do I have something? <clears throat> Where are you? Yes. And he lived in there. He lives in Arizona. Nicest man in the world. I said, you've got to make arrangements. I'll get them to bring you here. This is what we're doing in six days. You will never believe what they are doing. They will be so thrilled that it's you and me doing this because it's just the perfect thing. 
your mother's son, my father's daughter, tossing these silly daisies into this lake. I love it. It's, it's full circle. And he was able to do it. And I said, and I want you to be my guest at this Monster Palooza cell show. You bring everything you have about your mother and I'll get you a guest pass and you sit at my table and we'll just do this thing. And you'll meet all these people and it just worked out. All right. But yeah. talk about time. That was perfect. He could have called seven days later. Whole thing would have been over with. I know that must have been great. <clears throat> One of the things I heard about was when your father was throwing her into the lake, the mother kept on yelling, do it again, do it again. She was, yeah. Did, did she have that much of a career afterwards? I can't answer that, but she did have a career. After okay, that. good. Uh, that was, well, yeah, because I've seen the scrapbook. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of prayers, what advice did Lon Chaney Sr., a man of a thousand faces, give your father? Yeah. Yeah. My father was in the bus bus stop waiting for a bus in the rain. Chaney was the big, big star on the lot. My father was just a, 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 a he was um, an extra. I guess, yeah, he was still an extra or a bit part player. He was a bit part player by that time. Waiting in the bus stop to catch the bus to get home. And Cheney offers him a ride home in the rain. Wow. Says a lot for Cheney. Yeah. Says a lot for Cheney. A lot for Cheney. Yeah. Now, Cheney's seniors' parents were both deaf mutes. So there's a lot of empathy there, natural empathy there. And um, maybe Cheney mm -hmm. had seen something that my father had done on, felt he had, uh, who knows? But that, my father tells that story with such gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. And he, well, he gave him some great advice too. I love what he, he said. Did. To him. Yeah, I don't know the exact posing of the question, but do you have any? My father evidently asked Cheney, uh, senior, if he had any advice for an, an up and coming. My father had been there almost 10 years already in Hollywood. If he had any advice for an up and coming actor to get out and get noticed. And Cheney said something like, do something nobody else is willing to do and then do it better than anybody else can. Well, your father definitely took that advice to the 1,000th extreme. But he had to be offered the right role to do it. Yeah, very true. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, it's like, Don Harris calling me six days before this shoot. I'm so sorry. You're very popular. No. <laughs> May I call you back? Who is it? Okay, I'll call you back. I'm doing an interview. Everybody wants to talk to you. 
No, they don't. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that because speaking of roles, who Lon Chaney Sr. was originally cast as the monster. Is that correct? Uh, no, he was going he, or he was no. going to be cast. No. Okay. Lon Chaney Sr. was the big cheese on the lot. Okay. And the next big role would have been Frankenstein. Okay. And so it was assumed that he would be offered that role. I was with someone last night who said he probably would not have accepted it. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of somebody that didn't accept it, next in line was Bela Lugosi, and he didn't accept it. He, it I'm told that he didn't accept it because of all the makeup. Well, let me back up to the, your first question. Okay. Lon Chaney Sr. already had a role offered him by MGM. And I believe he would already moved over to MGM, which was a much better studio than Universal at the time. And why would he come back to Universal? I just learned this yesterday. So yours is a very timely question. It's, it's I was corner exclusive. <laughs> well, it actually is. Um, because it, um, it has always been assumed he would have accepted it, but he had, di but he died. Um, but he had already got moved over to MGM, which was a much better studio. And um, why would he move back to M to to um, Universal, which was not as good a studio? And why would he take a speechless part? In and that's what I was told. Wow. Um, and it makes good sense. Bela was offered it. He did not want to, I'm told, he did not want to wear all that makeup and have a an, um, um, non-speaking part. And um, uh, so he turned it down. Hmm. And then it was, um, then they changed directors and um, James Whale was appointed director instead of Flory. And um, my father was in the commissary at the right time and um, had just finished criminal code. And uh, Flory saw, um, Whale saw him and asked him if he would test for the role. And um, they, then that's when my father and Jack Pierce Test, uh, worked on the makeup for two weeks because at that point uh, um, Jack Pierce was head of the makeup department and had the wherewithal to take that much time to work on the makeup and studied what one something would look like um, having had a brain implant and um, he had the clout to take the time to to uh, perfect the makeup and the rest was cinema history. Yep. So I guess, is that true that James Whale became, started filming the movie before Karloff was even cast because they cast were testing out the makeup? They had already started filming before they had a anyone um, uh, cast for the role. 
Yeah. Because they wanted to see it. And how did you, how many different types of Frankenstein looks did they have? Was that the one that they, I mean, there must have been several. I have no idea. Okay. Because I can only imagine what it originally looked like compared, but I mean, I cannot picture Frankenstein any other way. I just, Jack Pierce is still. He nailed it. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Well, speaking of, now that we're talking about Jack Pierce, I want to talk about another movie he did with your father, The Mummy. I love this story. (laughs) Sorry. No, not at all. Hello? Hello? (laughs) I'm, I'm doing an interview at the moment. Who is this? Good night. It was a spam call. <laughs> Gosh. If I take it off the uh, the thing, it'll still buzz and booze and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, you know what? Do what you have to do. We'll do, just hang up on some more people. <laughs> no, what I was saying was I love this story about Jack Pierce. He worked with your You're father right. and the mummy. Um, he had them all wrapped as the mummy, ready to go. And then your father said, you forgot one important detail. What was that? They forgot to put in a fly. <laughs> I know. And they were facing a 19-hour shooting day. Oh, rather important. Rather important. And at the end of that shooting day, my father collapsed on the stage. Wow. You didn't know that. No. Because he had total dehydration. hmm Again, you know, they... A need for SAG. Yep. I mean, the, that gauze and and all that absorption of body fluid. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, funny Hot story. lights. Yeah. Well, getting, getting ready for this interview, I have been watching a lot of Boris Karloff, Boris Karloff movies again to uh, refresh my memory, but the mummy, just that one scene where they first see him and all you see are his eyes just open up. Just slit. Yes. Just, oh. just slit and you think, uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> and then, and then course- I think it's so clever to not do an overkill and all you see is the gauze mm-hmm. going through the doorway. Yes. That is such a brilliant, brilliant shot because you don't need any more than that you see the hand and the ring and then you just see the gauze going through the doorway yep. it's a perfect example of less is more that's absolutely right yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a great movie another one i watched last night again i haven't seen it in years and i loved it was comedy of terrors your father oh yeah in that movie <laughs> oh it's wonderful and those old now now, Peter Laurie and Vincent Price and my dad had known each other yeah. for eons and worked together before. And they they were so, they had so much fun on that. They played practical jokes on one another. They spoofed their own boogeyman images, you know, and they played practical jokes on Roger Corman and loved it. That was the I best can- part. I can oh, see how much had, fun you're having. Oh, it was just absolutely wonderful. They had such a good time. 
<laughs> and you know, I didn't realize this until yesterday. It was when I rewatched it. Was that it's written by Richard Matheson, who's one of my favorite yes. writers. Oh, he, he was a nice man play. too. Yeah, it's such a talent. I mean, he writes. He wrote all my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. And when I saw that, I said, "Wow, I did not realize that." It's a, yeah. that's a, another perfect combination. Peter Lloyd, Laurie, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, Richard Matheson. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. No, you can't. And even Hazel Rathbone. Oh, I know, I know. And then, then of course, there's the Raven. Yes. That they did, and I mean, oh please, and and um, in that is Jack Nicholson, and my father uh, said after that, he said, "There's a young man in this film that's going to go far." Mm-hmm. Yep. They had done the terror yep. and then this, and he said, that young man's going to go far. Yep. Well, let's talk about that because there's, a, let's talk about how those two movies that became two, because they, well, I'll let you tell the story of like how um, Roger Corman had a little bit, like two hours of time with Boris Karloff and said, let's just do something. Well, I know that was true for for um um targets yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that's another Tar- great one well that's my favorite yeah my father is essentially playing himself mm-hmm. as an age well in theory playing an aging horror film star um peter was given the assignment of writing it, uh, directing it, and acting in it. Uh, Corman had 10 minutes of Karloff screen time left over from somewhere. And so Peter um, was given the rights to take a slice of the terror, a slice from this, a slice from that, and make a film, and then 10 minutes of Karloff time. And so Peter, it was shot during the um, assassination of Bobby Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King. And uh, Targets is a a film about a sniper. And so essentially when it came out, it was pulled early from the theaters because of that and put on the shelves. But it was, it's a, it's a film which unfortunately is as timely today Mm -hmm. as when it was released originally. And he considers Uh, that his final film. Yes. His final film with any, um, quality yeah um but it really represented my father's beliefs that the real horror is on the street not up on the screen Mm -hmm. and it's a very i think it's a very fine film um it's very worthwhile film and um uh, it's one of my favorite films. I fortunately had the opportunity to tell Peter that 
many times. Oh, good. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and he knew how I felt about it. I, I was able to sit and chat with him several times. And um, I never had a chance to tell my father that, but I did have a chance to tell Peter that. And um, um, it is it is one of my fa very favorite films well, for a great many reasons because I know uh, I know I know I've heard my father in interviews say that um, you know just just seat me in a chair and give me some oxygen and a script and I'm ready to go and he he was just the consummate professional. And he loved what he did, but he was a man of great sensitivity and great compassion. Yeah. Well, that scene alone where he, t he tells the uh -oh. story in one take, and didn't he get a standing ovation by everybody? All the crew stood up and applauded and, and it really wow. brought a tear to his eye. It, it really did. It was, um, it, it, too bad it wasn't the final curtain. Yeah. Cause he did some not so wonderful films afterward, Mexican films, but they were kind enough, um, or commercial enough to, to shoot them here because he couldn't go to Mexico. And um, they were released. Some of them were released after he had died. Um, but it's also wonderful to know that his legacy and his name um, um, were so valuable. Yeah. I mean, when, when you make over 174 movies, they're not all going to be great movies, but he made so many. Anybody would be happy to make three of those movies. He's done so many. And yet tar Targets, I saw that not too long ago myself. And it just, oh. it's, it's a great movie. It's one of my favorites, just like you. And it's funny because I know, and I'll let you tell this, you're not a big horror fan. No, I'm not. <laughs> it's one of the world's worst kept secrets. Um, but I'm not. It's terrible casting as me as my father's daughter. <laughs> but um, uh, it's uh, I, I think my father's gentleness of spirit came through. Yeah. And that's why his legacy is so everlasting why his fans adore him and are not frightened. Mm -hmm. Well, what, um, what, who is the actress that he had to wiggle his finger because she was afraid oh, of passing out? Yes. Oh my goodness. That was one of the brides of Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah. And so then, but he, he had so much. It wasn't Elsa Lanchester. It was, Oh, gracious. Who was yeah. it? Well, but Robert, I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, yeah. no. Well, uh, the reason I bring that up was because he just had so much compassion, so much empathy for people. He wanted to let you know. I was like, um, it's all right. I'm, I'm, it's I'm, only I'm Boris. It's only Boris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what's great is like, as you mentioned, he had such a great sense of humor and comedy oh. is one example. 
But even on his specials, one of the specials I saw clips of was Dinah Shore. He's oh, yes. having a great time. I have to say probably the most impressive performance I've ever seen of Boris is him and Vincent Price singing The Two of Us. <laughs> yes, that's lovely. Or on the Carol Burnett show in the library when he comes around the corner and she scares him. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I think I remember that watching it years ago. Well, I forgot all about that. That's funny. That that was funny. But the reason I bring up the uh, Red Skelton is because I know what happened behind the scenes. He yeah, was so in a wheelchair. I. He had his oxygen. And they're like, all right, it's time to film. He'd take the oxygen off, get out in the car, sing with Red Skelton, sing with Vincent Price. As soon as the take was over, all right, go back to the wheelchair, put the mask back on. Talk about the consummate professional. Wow. Yes. He loved what he did. He truly was the consummate professional. Yeah. And my, and my godmother wrote one of the biographies about him. And she said almost to a person when she, when she interviewed people, they would preface their remarks by saying, oh, dear Boris, and then go on with their interview. So she titled the, uh, the biography, Dear Boris. I love it. And um, there, there is going to be um, uh, the, uh, my go-to person, really, for information about my father uh, is a book written by Stephen Jacobs. He's a British author, and he wrote a wonderful uh, biography on my father. It took him, he did 10 years of research on it. Wow. And, oh, yeah. And it's the definitive biography on my father, and it's called Boris Karloff, um, Behind the Monster, Beyond the Monster. And um, it's just outstanding. But it, it brings, it, it goes through every aspect of his childhood and his career and the man himself and... Um, He's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, but he's just about to go to print on uh, the uh, the compendium, um, Boris Karloff's compendium, and it is a photographic um, book collection of photographs and, and um, comments on the photographs and the time of my father's life and career that each photograph represents. And um, I think that's going to be the most wonderful way to pay a lasting tribute and memorial to my father. It'll be a um, wonderful coffee table book from uh, uh, representing my father's career and life. Well, I already know what I'm putting on my Christmas list. (laughs) Uh, It won't be ready quite by Christmas, but Uh right away thereafter. But his name is uh, Stephen Jacobs, and it's he wrote this wonderful bio. Actually, the definitive biography, and he's he's done this compendium, um, uh, uh, Boris Karloff compendium, and it's it's going to be wonderful. I can't wait. The documentary that time, well, I saw it on Shutter, but I know it's on DVD. I saw it on Tubi as well. That documentary- I'm selling them on my web page. Okay, that's good. Okay, no. okay, okay. Can I do that? Yeah, please. Um, Go ahead. They come in three versions, a DVD, 
um, a Blu-ray and a combination, a DVD, Blu-ray, and a booklet about everything. Um, uh, but each version has 147 minutes of extra, which says the rest of the story. And they're on my website, they're $20, $25, and $30, and um, plus shipping. And my website is, um, what is my website? www.karloff.com. Okay. It's the homepage for Karloff. And we have all sorts of things. We like to promote things like the documentary. I have a wonderful um, artist gallery. I promote various Karloff artists. I don't get anything out of it. I just promote the artists. We have a gift shop. Um, we have some new products, like we have a Karloff line of coffee, if you can believe it. We have a Karloff line of new tumblers with all sorts of fun images. We have the Jack Pierce um, uh, thing I told you about with my father's. It's called The Many Faces of Boris Karloff with my father's photograph in the middle and all the Jack Pierce makeups. We have the Grinch on there. We have all these great stuff. Um, but really, we're, what we're trying to do is promote the people, promote the works of the fans that come up with all these great ideas on my website. So I just post them on my website. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to send all my viewers to your website. I'm going to be going on there right after this interview. I want to check out some. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be doing some shopping myself. Uh, do early shopping. The Grinch tumbler is It's so neat. All right. But more than that, if anybody has questions for me, oh, they can flood my email, email box. It's karloff at karloff.com. And maybe by Easter I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do answer all my own emails. I really do. Well, the best thing is, is I called the number I had on the card you gave me. You answered, picked up right away. We talked for a while. Yeah, you're very friendly, very outgoing. <laughs> I love it. Well, That's, you know, why not? Yeah. I am so blessed to get to meet all my father's fans mm -hmm. and people like you, even people like you. <laughs> <laughs> now you're I really pushing to. it. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to go to all these shows and conventions and meet my father's fans. And every time I learn something about my own father, how lucky is that? Really? Yeah, no, that's really it, it's it's so great that you, like I, I mentioned several times during this interview, it's so great that you do that. And it's so great that the fans get a chance to talk to you. You're the closest thing they're ever going to get to uh, meeting boards. Yeah, I'm a conduit. I'm a yeah, exactly. yep, yep. Well, I learned a lot of things, you know, doing research on your dad. And one of the things I learned about, which I always had a feeling, but it was definitely confirmed, was the whole Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff feud. Mm -hmm. That was just all Hollywood hype. Is that correct? It was used as a hook. Yep, it worked. By the media to get them to buy tickets to their films. My dad, in his own words, 
said that Bela, being Hungarian and my father being English, of course, had his, each had their own personal interests. Mm-hmm. My my dad loved cricket. What did uh, someone from, from a Hungarian background know about cricket? I mean, nothing. So they pursued their own private time, personal time, pursuing their own personal interests. That's typical of any actor, any person, not just an actor. But that my father said, um, Bela was a magnificently trained stage actor in Hungary mm-hmm. and had a wonderful stage career. My father had been, had no training at all. And he recognized that about himself. He said Bela was a superb actor. Yeah. The one mistake that Bela made was he didn't take the time to really master the language in which he earned his bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Had he had he done that, his career would have soared because he was such a superb actor. But the fact that they didn't socialize together is the same thing that happens today. Actors will um, maybe spend three or four months on a film, on a set, on a location, making a film. And then if they're not cast together uh, on another film and they don't have similar interests, they won't see each other again unless they're in the same social circle. Yeah. Until they're cast again together. There was no animosity. There was nothing but professional respect for one another. But there was certainly no animosity, no uh, hostility, no professional rivalry between the two of them. There was nothing but professional respect. Mm -hmm. And that's what my father said. Well, there's two prime examples that I found online. One was a video of he and Bela singing were horrible, horrible men. That was great. Oh, isn't that fun? I isn't love it. that fun? Yeah. Oh, it is. It's that that is such fun. And they could never have pulled that off if there was any friction. Oh, exactly. And the other one is a video online I saw of them playing chess. It's hilarious. First they're acting like oh, they're that's angry. from Black Cat. Okay. That's a stage set. Okay. And they're both acting. Okay. But yeah, it's just, they just are, I mean, from what I can tell, and you, you just proved it and verified it that, yeah, they're just, unfortunately, Hollywood or, I mean, the media loves controversy because controversy sells and they're two big stars at times. Yeah, exactly. It sold tickets and it did what it was, but yeah, it's, I'm I'm glad that, because they played in how many movies together? Seven. Seven. Yeah. And then two of the biggest stars at the time. In that genre, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Well, question for you. I want to go back to Frankenstein because you you mentioned that he was never invited to the premiere. Why in the beginning of the movie is there a question mark where it says monster and then at the end it says Boris Karloff? I think it keeps the audience hooked Mm -hmm. on the edge of their seat. Yeah. 
and and why why give the the monster humanity mm-hmm. at the beginning? I think it was very clever. I don't think it was an insult at all. Okay. I think it was an insult not to invite him to the premiere. Yes. But maybe not. Again, that might have been. Nobody knew that this film was going to be such a success. And nobody knew that the creature uh, was going to be the star of the film. Everybody anticipated that Colin Clive would be. And so where where do you, how do you answer that question? Mm -hmm. You know, um, my father didn't, uh, my father was in the makeup room having his makeup taken off every night when the daily rushes were being shown. Okay. So he never saw even bits and pieces of the film, let alone the full run of the film before it was released. So the fact that he wasn't invited to the premiere, he never saw it. And my mother uh, was a a librarian graduate of uh, UC Berkeley. And so my father and she went up to Berkeley after the film was released and, and visited with a friend of my mother's from Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And the film was running up there. So they went, they kind of sneaked in to see it because this, at this time, it was, it was evident that the creature was a star and they sneaked in to see it. And my mother's nickname for Dorothy was Dot. And so they, the three of them went to the movie and, um, um, when the when the creature turns the monster turns around in the door, mm-hmm. her roommate from college said, "Oh my God, how can you possibly live with such a creature, a monster?" And of course, <laughs> they were nobody knew who they were, and so they were invited to leave the theater. So he didn't even get to see it then in its entirety. Oh. <laughs> so I don't know at what point he finally did get to see it, but by that time he was a star and could see it any place, any time he wanted to see it. But until then, he was just a piece of meat. Yeah. I and mean, that's how they were treated at that time. And so um, his involvement with the formation of the one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild was very, very important to him. He was very quiet about it. My mother told me that they would park one another's cars blocks away from the, of one another's houses and then walk to where the meeting was being held. And at parties, they would dance by one another on the dance floor and whisper, meeting Tuesday night at so-and-so's house and keep dancing because it was very dangerous. They were putting their careers on the line of never working again, of of never being casted in another film again. It was 
forming a union against these very powerful studios, very powerful directors and producers. And these 12 members, founding members, and my father's card was number nine. Um, it, it was an extraordinarily brave thing to do, but they felt it was important to give the uh, up and coming um, actors with without a voice an opportunity to give them a voice and and speak out about the appalling conditions that these pieces of meat yeah. as far as the studios were concerned. My father lost 25 pounds during the making of Fra Frankenstein and he had already been a starving actor for for 10 years in Hollywood, 80 films before Frankenstein, 10 years in British Columbia, and sometimes getting paid and sometimes not. Wow. So it was it it was tough going. Yeah. So um SAG may have now evolved into a huge overbearing um whatever it is say after but at its beginning it was important yeah. mm -hmm. and he was passionate about it he served on the board well into the mid or late 40s and it was founded in 1933 mm -hmm. who did he start it with oh the Cagneys, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Cagney, the Gleasons. Ah, okay. You'll have to look it up. Frank Morgan. Mm -hmm. There are 12 of them. Yeah. Wow. And he's number nine. Yeah, he's number nine. Well, I'm sure there's so many actors that don't even realize how much they oh, owe. Oh, no, towards. they have no idea. They have absolutely no idea. And that's not the point. Yeah. That's not the point. I have some wonderful photographs of the of the first meetings, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan was not not terribly far behind. Jane Wyman, his yeah. first wife, mm -hmm. you know. Wow. Yeah, no, he, he did. So I'm so glad that he had the the hindsight to say, you know what, something needs to be done. People shouldn't be treated like this. And now, you know, it's so much better for the actors. 19-hour shooting days. Yeah. Shooting days. And that's after makeup coming on, putting on and taking off. No. Mm -mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, some of the other movies he's done. I This one I was looking for, and I couldn't find it. It said it wasn't available, but it was a movie. It was 1935. He released two movies. One was The Bride of Frankenstein. The other one is called The Black Room, where he plays three roles. He plays oh, it's wonderful. You can find that. For some reason, I was looking for it last night, and the only place I found was on YouTube, and I just, for some reason, I was unable to access it. But oh, it's gonna, a wonderful film. Yeah. But he plays three roles. He plays the good brother, the bad brother, and the bad brother playing the good brother. Absolutely. <laughs> And I've seen clips of it, and it looks like such a great movie. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, that same year, he did Bride of Frankenstein, 
is uh, what was his thoughts on having the monster speak for the first time? Oh, he's well known. My father didn't yeah. really think the monster should be given speech. However, uh, the critics, the fans, and his daughter disagreed. <laughs> was he ever worried about being typecast when Frankenstein became so popular? Um, I have a couple of interviews. I mean, that's one of the most asked questions. Yeah. How, how do you feel about being typecast? And if you look at the breadth of his career, it's radio, it's um, children's recordings, it's Broadway, it's television, three series of his own. Mm -hmm. And then a hundred and some odd films. No. Yeah. But he always said that an actor is very fortunate to be typecast. Mm -hmm. um, if, you if you are fortunate enough to find your own niche and then be considered for roles in that niche throughout your career, you're very lucky. Yep. Well, I interviewed an author who wrote a book on Columbo, Peter Falk, and he said the oh, same yeah. thing. He said Peter Falk loved being Columbo. He said he would be all over the world. He was filming a movie, I think, in, it was something like Romania, wherever, somewhere yeah. way out there. And they're like, Columbo! And I said, did he ever get mad that that's all they knew? He goes, no, he embraced it. He loved every second Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I... I always said the same thing too. If I was ever known for just one thing, I would embrace that. I would be, I would be at every convention, just meeting the fans. Just I, I would love that. So I definitely know. But you're, like you said, and what I just said alone, 1935, Bride of Frankenstein, and the the Black Room. So mm -hmm. the, those two movies are so completely different. So yeah, he really did, was never in danger of being typecast, because and even at a time when horror was becoming less popular. He still had everything else going for him. He had that great voice, like you said, for the for the Grinch and so many other things. And then Arsenic and Old Lace. He did right. that. Play. And the Lark opposite yes. Julie Harris. He was nominated for Tony. He did five plays on Broadway. He had three television series of his own. Um, he had a huge body of radio work. I mean, he had a an enormous body breadth of work um he worked all the time yeah let's as i mentioned before i said i love how his tenacity he just never gave up always working i mean who how many times i mean i never heard somebody saying all right i made 80 movies the next one's gonna be big and some people so many people probably would have given up before that said i just can't do it but your father just kept on going that was his passion and he found his he found you know, the, the plans aligned and everything fell right into place for him. Well, I don't think there's anything he wouldn't try. Yeah. And that's the perfect thing. I always say that. I said, never say no. Say yes to pretty much everything. And if something doesn't work out, it might open up a door to something else that you never even knew was there. That's right. Yeah. Now I want to talk about another Frankenstein's, probably one of your favorite memories because um, this one is called, it was his 50, 51st birthday, the son of Frankenstein. 
And during that, the filming of that movie, he was given the best present of his life. Was, most expensive. <laughs> All right, so maybe not the best, but the most expensive. <laughs> I love that. And I'm sure we all know what that is. That was you. You were born on his 51st birthday during the filming of Son of Frankenstein. I was. And we're filming today on your birthday and your father's birthday. So once again, happy birthday, Sarah. Thank you very much. I'd like to make it clear it's not my 135th. <laughs> I don't want anybody to get confused about that. She is much younger than that. <laughs> not much. <laughs> You know what, let's talk about the, because uh, I saw a clip of this or pictures of it, when he was filming the movie and he came out and he thought they were still filming and he looked over and he saw the cast and crew. What did they have for him? A birthday cake. Yeah. With shoes. I Baby love that. shoes. Yeah, because he was coming out, I think he was coming out of the slime or something. He just. Oh, he came out of the pit. The pit, yes. The pit. Yeah. 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 So uh, yeah, there's a there's a, there's a uh, uh, what is it called? I don't know. But there's a story that he um, went to the hospital in his Frankenstein clothes. Mm -hmm. Not true. Can I please once and for all? No, he didn't. Because there is a, a, an often seen photograph of the nurse holding me and my father looking adoringly <laughs> at me. And he is dressed very respectfully in his English uh, tweed jacket and the whole nine yards looking at me. In the hospital, please, he did not leave the set. Do you really think they would let him leave the set in his son of Frankenstein costume, get in a taxi, go to the hospital, walk through the halls of the hospital and turn up at the maternity ward? I don't think so. Nope. I love it. A lot of myths have been uh, shattered today here in the Claws Corner. So thank you very much, Sarah. Because <laughs> I have seen the no picture way. that you're talking about, where he's looking at you so lovingly. <laughs> or amazingly. <Yes. laughs> or horrified. I don't care what you, I don't care what adjective you use, but please dispel the rumor. Yep, it is. <laughs> It has, has been dispelled. He was not dressed as Frankenstein okay. when, when you were in the hospital with him. <laughs> oh, he did not rush to the hospital in his boots. Again, it makes for some great Hollywood lore. Oh, I know it does. It's like the media coverage of Balin Boris. <laughs> yep. Well, I want to talk about the stage where you mentioned a little bit. You mentioned Lark. You mentioned yeah. Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, I, in particular, let's talk about Arsenic and Old Lace because I love this okay. story. Did he have at first any trepidation of doing stage work? Yes. He was terrified. Mm -hmm. He, um, well, if, it, it, he was first approached by Lindsay and Krauss to do Arsenic and Old Lace. 
And he absolutely refused to do it. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I've been doing films too long and I could not possibly do a Broadway show. No, oh, no, a lot. No, 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 I'm not up to it. Uh, uh, and no. And and so uh, they took him to lunch and uh, talked him down about uh, from his nervous pedestal and said, well, Boris, of course you can. And and then he said, well, there'd have to be at least three more important people in the cast than I, and they assured them there were. And then they, he, they told him more about the play and he liked the play and he liked the script. And um, he, he said, well, I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm up to anything that doesn't have more than one take or anything live. It's been so long since I've done live, live stage at all. But they finally talked him into at least doing some rehearsals. Now, my father had, as a young boy, a stammer, and he retained and he got over it but he retained a certain degree of a lisp that he was known for. It was not so long ago that somebody brought that up to me and I said, what lisp? Because mm -hmm. that was simply the way my father talked, but he did have a lisp. And so I said, well, I, 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 just, I, I just don't know if I can do this, but he did agree to go into rehearsals. It was a very prestigious cast and so he agreed to uh try so he went into rehearsals for it and he botched it totally botched it his stammer came back his lisp got worse he couldn't memorize his lines and my father had a wonderful memory he was really uh known for learning his lines quickly. And he had, I can't remember who all was in the cast with him, Helen Hayes, and help me out here. No, I, I can't remember who else played in it. Yeah, I, but I, it was a very prestigious cast. Yeah. And he had a terrible time. Oh. And he kept botching the lines and forgetting his lines, and his timing was off, and everything was wrong. And he thought, you know, I just, I, I'm just not up to this. I'm not up to a Broadway play, for goodness sakes. And he loved the line about himself, but he just thought, I'm holding this whole thing up. I cannot do this. So he took himself for a long walk and he, you know, he thought, talked to himself and he thought, no. I cannot do this. And he came back and he announced to the rest of the cast, I'm so sorry for wasting your time, but I can't, I, I'm not up to it. I, I'm, it's been too long since I've done live theater and I cannot do this. And they said, come on, Boris. Yes, certainly you can work with us one more time and we'll we'll help you and so they did another 
round of rehearsals and the stammer went away and the lisp got better and he did better on everything. And so the rest is stage history. So why wasn't he in the movie then? Because he was under contract for the play and they wouldn't release him. I mean, because the whole, as you mentioned, there's a joke throughout the play, because I look like Boris Karloff. It's not going to work. Well, he was asked, that one of the, the line is, uh, why did you kill him? Yeah. Uh, Johnny, why did you kill him? And my father's response is, because, they, because he said I look like Boris Karloff. <laughs> and, and the house comes down mm-hmm. every night. And so they did not want to release him from the play because they had a sellout every night. It held the record for long playing plays until um, Sound of Music. And and so by that time, they wouldn't even release him just to do a a one-day shoot for the play, for the movie. So it's too bad. But that's the way it was. But it went on the road, and he took it on the road for several years. But he wasn't in the film. Yeah, yeah. that's a shame because it's just not going to get the same. It's not the no. same effect if he was really Boris Karloff no. making a joke about himself. No. It's a, yeah. no, it isn't. Yeah, he had another play that he did. I'm not sure if it was Linden Tree or On Borrowed Time, and I hate to misquote it, but. Um, one of the plays, other plays he did, and he did The Lark opposite Julie Harris, which he absolutely adored doing. And he was nominated for Tony, as was she. She won. He did not. But he adored working with Julie. And um, it, it was just a wonderful play and wonderful performance by each of them. But it was it was just magical, magical play. Um, and then he did uh, Peter Pan, which was wonderful. And he loved having the children walk across, come backstage afterwards to get be able to try on the hook and fly across the stage and have fairy dust sprinkled on them. It was wonderful. I had all those wonderful experiences as a child. But uh, then he did Linden Tree and On Borrowed Time. And for the life of me, I cannot tell you which one it was. But he was deep into rehearsals for one of them. And, And the producer said, oh, my God, we cannot have Boris Karloff on the on the marquee, they'll think it's a a murder mystery, and and my father was really enjoying rehearsing for it and really enjoyed the part, and so the director had to come to him and say, Boris, I'm so sorry that the but but the but the backers, the producer, does doesn't feel you're the right person for this play. He's afraid that everybody will think it's a mass murderer play. And my father said, oh, 
oh, I was so enjoying it that I do understand his position. I mean, why he might think that. So my father withdrew from the play. But the next day, my father sent the producer, whose money is involved in the play and, and the returns for it, he sent him a, a wire, a telegraph at that time, telegram at that time, saying, I would not have eaten the baby at the end of the first act, of course, Karloff. Yeah. That so enchanted the producer that he hired him back for the play. I love it. <laughs> I love it, too. I love it, too. <laughs> Now, was he doing plays more at the end of his career after some of the... the no, 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 no. He was doing that. Actually, when he first went back to Hollywood, uh, to New York from Hollywood in the late 40s, he moved back to New York in 49. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I want, he also did some TV. I want to talk about that. Oh. Let's talk about Shock Theater. I can't. Oh, you can't talk about it? Well, I can't because I don't know anything about it. Okay. Well, you see, I don't like scary movies. <laughs> okay, I forgot about that. Yes, and so I never watch shock theater. <laughs> what's wrong with you? I, I don't know what's wrong with me. There's there's a lot wrong with me. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but I, I never watch shock. I shouldn't say that, should I? It was a wonderful program. I'm very sorry I said that. <laughs> I personally liked it. The other one I want to talk about, I'm not sure if you watched this one, was Thriller. Oh, of course I did. It was wonderful. Didn't mean shock that it wasn't. It nope. just means I didn't watch it because I'm a scary pants. Well, you know, you brought up a great point. I interviewed several years ago, Ann Serling, Rod Serling's daughter, and she was saying when she was, she was young at the time and her father was sheltering her and he wouldn't let her watch the show and she'd go to school and people would say, oh, what are you from the Twilight Zone? And she really didn't have a clue what they were talking about till later. So for you, I know you were born later. Um, what was Never the first mind saying that? <laughs> no, no, you were. <laughs> what I mean Never by that is mind saying those things. Just move on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> what was your first <laughs> experience watching a Boris Karloff movie? <laughs> I was nineteen. And I watched Frankenstein on television in my mother and stepfather's living room all by myself. Now, what is your next question? No, I think you pretty much answered everything I wanted to know about that. What, what made you wait until age 19? Weren't you curious growing up of what your father did? And you went? No, I knew what he did. But you didn't really... It wasn't that I wasn't curious. Now, uh, we could go into it. Let's do it, if you feel like talking well, about it. Okay, certainly. Um, my parents were divorced when I was seven. Okay. Okay. Uh, my, uh, my mother and my father each remarried very happily, very mm -hmm. successfully. And my Father stayed in uh, uh, Beverly Hills, Hollywood, and my mother um, moved to San Francisco, uh, where she married. She married a very successful uh, San Francisco attorney, 
and he was my stepfather, and I adored him. I saw, thought the sun rose and set on him. So they were both very happily remarried. Okay. Okay. So I grew up in San Francisco after age seven. Okay. Now, got the picture? I do. do you really think that when my father's films came on television, and this was at a time when there were one television households, that that evening's entertainment was going to be watching my father's films on television. Point well I taken. I went to a private girls' school. Do you think my girlfriends were going to go to see horror films? No. No. Do you think my mother was going to drive me to see my father's films? No. Okay. So I was out of sync I with see. my father's films. I didn't have my own television to watch them on in my bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So right. I just happened to unfortunately be out of sync. So then when I found myself in our home in actually then Sausalito at age 19 and my Frankenstein was on and nobody was home, I watched Frankenstein on the television alone in the living room. I wasn't breaking any rules. It just was what I did. Yeah. And I, by that time, I'd heard so much about it that I watched it rather studiously. I really enjoyed it, but I understood why all the hype about it. But I watched it rather studiously. Mm -hmm. But I just happened to be out of sync with my father's career. Yeah. No, that's definitely. Um, thank you for sharing that story with me. The um, your father also. Said, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1993 or four, when it was the famous Monsters of Filmland convention uh, in Crystal City, Maryland, mm -hmm. Bela Jr. and Dwight Fry Jr. and Ron Cheney and I, yours is empty, so is mine. Uh, um, we all met together and we were invited to that convention. We never met. It was a wonderful convention, except, I mean, everybody was so fascinated that all of us were invited and we were there and all the monster kids were there we were all there we were and so we couldn't walk 10 feet without being just overwhelmed by all this and somebody asked me if i'd been down to the dealer's room i thought they were playing poker <laughs> I didn't know all this went on. I know. See? I had no idea any of this went on. I mean, that isn't the life I'd lived. Mm -hmm. And so this was a great fun adventure. I was married at the time and I had children and oh my goodness, this was all strange. Yeah. So 
Well, speaking of Bela Jr., I want to talk about um, how he helped preserve the Karloff name. He helped you. Oh, you bet. Yeah, let's talk about that. Bela helped write a law called CC 990. It now has new numbers I can never remember. But it protects the interest of the families um, and uh, the use of their persona rights without compensation to the families. Mm -hmm. From what I read, he also helped the Three Stooges as well. No, he represented as an attorney the rights that are covered under that law. Okay. I knew I knew there was a connection with the Three Stooges. That's why I'm glad you cleared it up for me. But as an attorney, yeah. he represented the Three Stooges and their rights as represented uh, under the law that he helped write. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad that he's a uh, he's another one that's doing some great work and helping people. Uh, I want to talk about Boris. I know you said you don't like horror, Boris actually preferred terror yeah. to horror. So he was, he was, he, what well, was, I couldn't agree with him more. I agree with that too. What was his reasoning for that? Well, he felt the word terror invited the participation of the imagination of the audience. Uh, they could um, use their own imagination and um, anticipation of what was going going to happen um, and their own understanding of what was going on. Horror, horror, uh, just dump blood and guts in your lap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can't agree more. I I love a good suspenseful psychological thriller over blood and guts. I do like those movies too, but... If I had to pick a favorite, I'm I'm with you and Boris. Terror is definitely when you have to use your imagination of what you think's happening instead of actually the screen showing you. It's like reading a book. For me, my imagination could do so much more than what a director could show me on film. So mm-hmm. I, I I do like that, and I agree with that. So I have some questions for you now. Well, first of all, um, why did you make George Kennedy cry, or how did you make George Kennedy cry? I never told you that. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to tell me now. <laughs> no. My father one never talked about other actors or really about his own career. But mm-hmm. one day he said to me, uh, one day in conversation, he said, I really think George Kennedy is a fine actor. Mm-hmm. So one day at Chiller Theater, which I do in October, it's a convention, George Kennedy was a guest there. And I uh, took the opportunity to go up to his table and introduce myself and tell him the compliment I felt was a compliment. Uh, that my father had paid him, and he got tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a huge compliment. 
to well, George was Kennedy. A comment, it's a comment my father made, and Mr. Kennedy took it as a great compliment. Yeah, and I would too. That, that's a huge compliment coming from a great, great master. So the other thing I had for you is what is the connection, the Frank Sinatra-Boris Karloff connection? I'm told by, I've been, I was told by Frank Jr. that Frank Sr. Um, approached my father to help him uh, learn to mark his scripts and to prepare himself for uh, films. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, he taught Frank Sinatra how to act, in a way, or he was sort of no, a mentor. No, that's not what I said. Okay. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> I said that Frank Jr. told me, Frank Jr. was a good friend of mine. Frank Sr. was the god, uh, godfather to my granddaughter. Uh, Frank Jr. told me, who was a good friend of mine, that his dad had told him that um, my he used to go to my father to help him mark his scripts and help him um, study his scripts and with his lines. Yeah. Yep. Well. The other thing I have for you is uh, <clears throat> we, we mentioned what you attribute the lasting effect of your father's legacy is the fans. Absolutely. Now, for you, you um, you mentioned that you go to Chiller every October. That's in Persippany, New Jersey. Great place. Yes. Do you um, do, do you do um, all the horror conventions or not all of them, obviously, but do you do a lot other one? A lot of other ones. You mentioned Monsterland. You do Chiller. No, I've got. I've done Monster Palooza a couple Monster of Palooza. times. Okay, but Chiller is the main one. I was invited one. this past year. Well, you know what? I don't have any say in it, but I'm going to invite you. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, there. You you mentioned several times how humble your father is. How he really doesn't like to talk about himself, and he's so gracious. There's one time you received the phone call and said, "Sarah, you have to watch this." What was that? Oh, uh, yeah, my father never talked about his work, really, or his career or other actors. And one time my phone rang one evening and he said, Sir Jane, um, there's something I've done and I think it's, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> And um, I thought maybe you and the boys, and I have two sons, and they were little guys at that point. Um, I think maybe you and the boys might enjoy watching it. Um, it's on tonight. I think it's on, to, on the telly tonight um, at 7. And I thought maybe you might like to, you might enjoy watching it. It's called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Pretty good. It was wonderful. 
I love it that. It remains wonderful every year. It's such a tribute to my father's talent and to Chuck Jones and all the people, Thor Ravenscroft and all the people who were involved with it. Um, we loved it that night. We've loved it every night since then. It is part of Christmas going forward and forward and forward. But it is so, it was so atypical of my father to call me. It's the only time he ever called me and said, I've done, I'm in something tonight you might like to watch. But it's so typical of my father to be so humble about it. Um, you won a Grammy for it. It is as iconic and legendary a part of his legacy as Frankenstein and the mummy and any other part of his body of work, but it's, it's a family treasure to us all. And we just, it was, it was just amazing that he called or we might've missed it the first year, but we certainly would not have missed it any other year thereafter. Yeah. Oh, I have to say that you mentioned that you talked to people like, oh, my grandfather introduced my father to introduce my son. So I, for me. Oh, it's multi-generational. Yeah. Yeah. It for me, my father used to wake my brothers and I up. And we'd watch all the Frankenstein movies, The Mummy. I grew up watching all that. And re I all I remember about The Grinch, because these are the days when you had to make sure the color was correct. For first 25 minutes, my father was trying to get the Grinch as green as it could be. Then when he finally gets it to where it is, it's over. <laughs> That's what every year uh -huh. we try to watch the Grinch. I know I can make it a little bit greener. Come on, wait, wait. Then you got to do the fix the rotor and the antenna. On. It was hilarious. Every year it's like, Dad, let's just watch the, the TV show. Uh, so I, I want to thank my father for introducing me to all of your father's movies and I mean, it's, I'm such a huge fan of all of his work. And as we mentioned, he's done so many different things, comedy, horror, terror, stage, screen, radio. So it's yeah. it all. I do want to leave with, this is one of my favorite lines your father ever said, and we'll, we'll end with this. Um, your father was in a TV show playing Mother Muffin and the girl from Uncle. <laughs> What did he say when he looked in the mirror? I looked like a two-bit whore. I can't think of a better way to end this interview. The Boris Karloff, the two-bit whore. Sarah, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being on here. And uh, before we go, do you have? I know you were talking earlier about your website. One more time, let's plug away. What do you? What do you? Uh, where can people find you? And uh, what do you? What are you selling? <laughs> Well, I, I do have a website, and I invite you to visit it. It's www.carloff.com. And if you have any questions you want to ask me, my email is carloff at carloff.com. They made them both simple so I could remember them because I'm not tech savvy. Neither am I. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, yeah. You are very welcome. And first of all, happy birthday to your father and a much younger, much, much younger happy <laughs> birthday to you, Sarah Karloff. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Oh, I love this. You got to come back sometime. We can okay, I accept.
Watch right. out. And, and I will see you again either at Witch's Dungeon or at Chiller. Okay, but I'm, I'm, oh, you're on the East Coast. Yeah, I live in Connecticut. Too bad, because we're doing a Grinch uh, uh, oh. panel at, at Seasons, Seasons Screamings in Pasadena the first weekend um, in uh, December at the Pasadena Convention Center. We're going to oh. have a lot of fun. Oh. We'll right. miss you. Too bad oh. about you. <laughs> I can see how, how heartbroken you are over it. Uh, <laughs> see you next year, Chiller. You most definitely will. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Happy birthday. That wraps up another episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to Sarah Karloff for taking time out of her extremely busy schedule to be on the show and talk about her legendary father, Boris Karloff. Once again, happy birthday to you and dad. And this show Thank would not you. be possible without the uh, superb editing of John Bristol of Elmwood Productions. Thank you very much for making this show available to all each and every week. And lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. Diaphragm again? Ha! We caught one. They're supposed to be weird. Oh, yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie.